Start making your way back to your seats. You'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. We are continuing on in our series through the book of Judges, a series that's entitled Broken Leaders. And God's unbroken promises. And we spent the past couple weeks working through the two different introductions uh, that we see in the book of Judges. And this week we're actually going to to take a look at the first judge, Othniel. And so we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to read through verse 11. I know I just told you to take your seats, but I want to ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Judges chapter 3, beginning... In verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 11. Hear, hear the word of the Lord. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against them, and he sold them to King Kushan Rishathium of Aram Naharim, and the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle and the Lord handed over King Kishan Rishathiam of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for 40 years and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we consider your word. I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear this morning. I ask for physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that God is the hero, that God is the hero. You know, all throughout the Bible, and you have this theme of God using unlikely, unqualified, ill-prepared people and using them to accomplish extraordinary things. You see it with Abraham, a pagan who worshipped other gods, who encounters the true and living God and becomes the father of many nations. You see it with David in his story, a shepherd boy who wasn't the oldest, he wasn't the strongest, he didn't even look like a king when Samuel came to anoint the king to find the one that God was going to raise up. He just looked over David. Surely it wasn't this shepherd boy. And God uses David to become one of the greatest earthly kings that Israel had ever known. You see it with the disciples. When Jesus calls 12 ordinary men, they weren't the religious elite. They didn't have earthly status. Many of them were looked down upon. And God uses these men to lay the foundation of the church. You see it with Paul. A man who was devoted to his Jewish identity and he was, he was so devoted that he was murdering Christians and Jesus shows up and Paul becomes an instrument for reaching the Gentiles and through Paul, God communicates nearly half of the books of the New Testament to us. God is good at taking unlikely candidates and using them to accomplish amazing things for his glory, but often The problem comes in that we can hear those stories and we can marvel at the wrong character. 
You see, as amazing as Abraham seemed, as royal as David appeared, as influential as the disciples became, we can, we can get it twisted and we can look at them and marvel at them and miss God. And if we miss God, we've missed the point. Whenever God works, whoever God works through, the point is not ultimately to elevate those individuals. Yes, we give honor where honor is due, but the point is not to ignore God as we elevate those people. The point is so that we would see in the midst of, in the midst of unlikely, unqualified, ill-prepared people, we would see how amazing God is. And throughout the book of Judges, what we will see is both faithful judges and we see less faithful judges. But the point is ultimately not the judges. The point is the God who equips them and uses them because he is a God who cannot break his promises. And this morning we're going to begin to examine the judges in Israel during this time between when Joshua dies and between when the monarchs start before God anoints King Saul. And so we're in this in-between time and we see the judges as the one who are raised up as the most influential earthly figures in the life of Israel. And what we see with the judges is we see unlikely, unqualified, and ill-prepared people, ultimately broken leaders who are used by God because God cannot break his promises. And as a result, as we examine the judges, not only do we see some lessons in their lives, but ultimately we learn lessons about God himself. Now, what I want to do before we look at this first judge is I've got to give you a little bit more information about the judges in general so that we can understand them a little bit better. And so the first question that we have to ask is, what is a judge? When we're looking at the book of Judges, what is a judge? And the judges of the Bible are not necessarily what we might often think of when we hear the word judge. We think of a person in a courtroom who hears arguments, who rules on questions of order, and ultimately, in an ideal world, impartially oversees to make sure that justice is received. But these judges in the Bible, they don't necessarily have that role. That's not what it means to be a judge in the Old Testament. These judges were deliverers. They were considered saviors of the nation. They were raised up in seasons when Israel was under the rule of foreign nations, and God uses them to deliver the nation. We see it even in the text that we just read there in, in verse 8, where it says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Kishon, Rasathium of Ariam, Nahariam, and the Israelites served him eight years. So they're in captivity, and it's in the midst of this context that God raises up a judge to deliver them. And these judges, often through physical conflict, through, conflict, through fighting, through war, they would deliver Israel from their captors. Now, there are some things that we have to note about the judges, and Dr. Daniel Block's helpful in identifying three components of the judges that we can't forget. The first component of a judge is that their power always came from Yahweh. It always came from God. We see it there in verse 10 where it says the spirit of the Lord came on him, onto Othniel, and he judged Israel. So the power that the judges possessed, and we'll see in the story, sometimes it is a supernatural power. It doesn't originate within them. It is given to them by God. But the second characteristic is that their purpose was not judicial. This is what Dr. Block says, but soteriological. Now let me explain that. 
In other words, their purpose was not to remind the people of their, or their purpose was, I'm sorry, to remind the people of their need for a better deliverer. So we're talking about soteriology, we're talking about the study of Christ, and he's basically saying these judges weren't primarily to handle judicial matters, but they were meant to be a picture of the deliverer who was to come, one who could provide a deliverance that was not dependent on their behavior, a deliverer who would not merely deliver them from their physical enemy, but their spiritual enemy as well. And the third characteristic is that deliverance brought about by the judges was primarily from external enemies not dealing with internal conflicts. That the judges, they were primarily dealing with external enemies and not internal conflicts. In other words, the judges weren't necessarily doing anything to change the sin that was the pattern of Israel during the time. Their primary function was to deal with the outside external enemies. And I think there's a reason for that. Because the judges weren't qualified to deal with men's souls. They needed a better deliverer for that. Now, we'll come back to this later in the series, but something of interest, it's, it's interesting to me, is the fact that throughout the book of Judges, no judge is ever actually called a judge in the text. In the original language, they're always described by the verb to judge. So the Bible, when it speaks of the judges, only speaks of what they were doing. It doesn't actually ever call them a judge. We see it even with Othniel there in verse 10, where it says the Spirit came, of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. It speaks of what they're doing, not who they are. And the reason this is interesting is when we get to chapter 11, we'll see that a judge is finally named. It's actually the noun form that's used of, of the judge, but it's speaking of God and God alone. So it's okay for us to call them judges, but we have to understand and just pay attention that, that God is intentional in the text to communicate that though they served as judges, they were not sufficient to be a judge. Again, the people needed a better deliverer. And we look back now knowing who that deliverer is. And so in our text this morning, we meet the first judge, Othniel. Now, in the book of Judges, <clears throat> there are 12 judges total. Six of them are considered major judges, and the other six are considered minor judges. And so, as we move through the remainder of the series, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention solely on the six major judges and their stories in the book. It's not that the minor judges are insignificant. Sometimes it's just hard to build a sermon around a text that says, Jair killed the enemies and delivered the people. That's all they give you. But he was a judge. So we're going to focus on the six major judges. Now what you will notice as we move from judge to judge, and this is significant, right? Stick with me. It'll get better. I'm just kind of giving you the overview, the lay of the land, right? Is as we move from judge to judge, we'll see that as the nation progressively gets worse, the judges progressively get worse. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because I remember the Sunday school stories, right, where Samson is like the pinnacle of like the judge, like the best of the best. That man is the worst of the worst when it comes to the judges. We'll get there. But you'll notice that they progressively get worse. And so with that being said, we have to understand that the reason that God starts with Othniel is because he is considered the pinnacle of all the judges. Though there's not a great amount of detail surrounding his story, he's the pinnacle picture of the deliverer of Israel. He sets the paradigm by which every other judge will be measured. 
It's through Othniel that we understand what the purpose of the judge is. So as we move through this account of Othniel, there are three truths that I want to pull from the text. And they aren't really points about Othniel. They're not really points about you or me. Ultimately, they're points about God. Now here's the reason we're going to look at it that way. It's very interesting to me to consider the fact that the pinnacle judge, the example that is given to us of the best of the best, it hardly talks about him at all. It talks about God. And it just got me thinking that maybe, maybe when we are at our most faithful, people won't look at us. They'll see God instead. And so the reason that Othniel is not talked about much and that God has talked about more is because he was such a good judge that he didn't put the emphasis on himself. It was all about who God is. And so our points this morning are focused on God and God alone. Here's the first thing that I want you to see from our text. The first thing is that our God is holy. Our God is holy. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. It says, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he sold them to King Kishon Rishathium of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served him eight years. Now, even as I mentioned above, as we move throughout the story and we consider the judges and the broken leaders, the emphasis is not on them. The point of judges is not primarily so that we would understand Israel during this time or the judges that ruled. The purpose of judges is so that we would have another example, a better picture, a fuller grasp of who our great God is and what he's like. Again, Othniel is considered the best of them, and yet he's not talked about hardly at all. And so as I was thinking about this, it served as a reminder to me that when we approach the Word of God, when we spend time in the Scriptures, the primary focus of that time is not you. I mean, let me say it this way. Yes, the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It directs us. Yes, the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, and the Spirit uses the Word to convict and reveal sin. It is for you, but the Bible is not about you. And if you approach the scripture solely with yourself in mind, you've missed the whole point. Because the word of God is about God. How often do we walk away from our time in the word only thinking about ourselves? And the word of God, yes, it reveals to us who we are, but ultimately it reveals to us who God is and how we are to live in light of him. But we cannot get it mistaken. It's not about us. It's about God. And we see it here in our text because the story doesn't begin with Othniel. It begins with the Lord and the people doing what is evil in his sight. The people forgetting the Lord and worshiping false gods. And the reason they find themselves in the predicament they are in is because there is a holy God who they have rebelled against and they have forgotten about him. And this text is positioned to teach us that the God they have forgotten, the God they have rebelled against is a holy God. So let's talk about God's holiness for a couple minutes. The first thing that we have to understand about God's holiness is that God's holiness should serve as a caution to us. 
It should serve as a caution to us. And the reason it serves as a caution is because it reminds us that God is so holy. He is so perfect and good and righteous that he cannot overlook sin. So pay close attention to the language the author uses here. Look again at verse 8. He says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Kishan Rishathium of Aram Naharium, and the Israelites served him eight years. He sold them. God did it. This is the Lord seeing the sin of the people and responding as a holy God should. Now, I'll be honest with you. In my earthly understanding, my first glance when I read that, I thought to myself, and I think it often, and the Lord's got to check me. I think, man, man, that's kind of harsh, isn't it, God? Like you sold them into slavery. These are your people, the people you made a covenant with, and you sold them into slavery. I mean, you didn't even put, you didn't even put the emphasis on, on the king. Like you said, I did it. I made sure it happened. So this isn't a situation, right? Sometimes bad things happen in our life because God allows wickedness to continue. And he is passive in his stopping of wickedness. But there are times that hard things happen, that consequences happen, that they happen in our life, and God is the one who is doing it. And this is not one of those moments where God's like, you know, I mean, they were wicked, and so I didn't restrain them. I just kind of let them do their thing. No, God says, just to be clear, they sinned against me, and I sold them into slavery. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized this isn't harsh at all. This is God simply giving them what they want. I appreciate the way that Miles Van Pelt makes it when he writes this of Israel. He says, in her idolatry, so in Israel's idolatry, she served foreign gods. And so, in her subjugation, God made her serve foreign nations. See, his point, what he's getting at, reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 21 through 25, where he says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. And their senseless hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Here it is. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what, was, what has been created instead of the creator who is to be praised forever. Amen. And what Paul is showing there is that there comes a point and we see it here in Judges chapter 3 that, that when sin abounds unchecked there will come a point when God will let you have your sin. And he will remove his hand of restraint and will allow us to experience the full weight of what we think we want. Now, I debated going here because I was trying to decide if it was a high horse or not. But then I, remind, I was reminded that the Lord called me to this and you pay me to do it, so I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to get on my high horse and stay on it until I feel a little better. Perhaps this is the reason America is facing what it's facing today. Like I know we like to make the claim that we are a godly nation 
founded on godly principles. I can debate the history of that all you want. I don't necessarily agree with that. But what I do know is that when I look at a nation, I see God giving us the things we claim to value and us having to reckon with the fact that they are not producing what we thought they would produce. You want your freedom for your own sake? See what happens to that freedom when it is used for its own sake in Texas. The Bible tells us that freedom was never about us. It was about the good of those around us, yet we think our freedom's all about. We want our individuality. We value and value. You be you. You do whatever you want to do. We've told our kids, and I don't know if you said this to them. I'm not trying to harp on you. Like, you can do and be whatever you want to do and be, and it's just not true. But we have pushed this idea of you get to determine who you want to be, and we're watching as our nation crumbles. Maybe, just maybe, we are experiencing God remove his hand of restraint from this nation and say, do you want to see what what you think you want, what it actually produces? I'll show you. And what Judges reminds us of is that our sin left unchecked never produces what we think it will produce. And the only reason we don't feel the full weight of our sin is because God is patient and kind and restrains the full weight of our wickedness. I found myself even this week. This was a hard week for me. This was a heavy week. Like, I hate getting up and preaching on weeks like this where, like, there's just pain everywhere, which is ironic. I think it's the time we should be preaching the most. But I found myself asking the question, why do things just seem to be so bad? Like, I have never cried so much as dropping my child off at school on, when was it, Wednesday morning? Like, like I, I posted this somewhere. It's like, I have prayed specifically for Emery since she's been in kindergarten. So for three years now, every day I pray the same prayer. Lord, protect this girl's body, her heart, and her mind. And those aren't just random words. I mean every word of that because I have never been so fearful. And I found myself this week asking, why do things seem so bad? And as I asked that question, I found myself reminding me, the Spirit reminding me of the same truth that I've offered to you in the past. The better question is not why are things so bad. The better question is why would God allow anything good in the first place? Because even when wickedness seems to abound, the fact that sinful man is not as sinful as they should be is because God is restraining wickedness in the world. But when things seem rougher than usual, it is a painful reminder that God does not and will, does not have to and will not restrain the full weight of wickedness forever. And so as we see the holiness of God on display in our text, it should caution us about the truth that sin is not something to be played with. I know I'm guilty of it too. I think I can manage it at times. I think I can walk that line and be just close enough to it where it's not going to swallow me up and engulf me. And and I've got to be reminded, in fact, the only reason it hasn't swallowed me up and engulfed me isn't because I've walked really well. It's because the Lord has kept pushing me from falling over. But there can come a time when he will remove his hand. It should serve as a warning to us, a caution. Sin is not something to be played with. But I want to mention this as well, because sometimes like, man, that's heavy and that's hard and it is heavy and it is hard. But God's holiness is not only a caution to us. It should also be a comfort to us. It should serve as a comfort to us. 
The fact that God is holy and that he must deal with sin reminds us that there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no oppression, there is no injustice that will not be addressed in the presence of a holy God. Like, again, being transparent, like, even this week as I sat in my house and wept over what happened in Texas, I found myself asking the question, when will people be held accountable? And if I'm honest with you, that question flowed from a momentary belief that accountability would never come. But God was kind to remind me in this text, reminded me that accountability always comes. Justice always comes. Righteousness always comes. If you It might not be when you want, it might not be how you want, but my God is too holy to let sin slide by. And that's a comfort to me, that God will vindicate the righteous and will judge the wicked. And if not in this life, it will be in the life to come. Now hear me, this is not an excuse for an action when we see wickedness in the world, but it is our hope when we are unable to fully affect the change that we long to see. Our God is holy. But we can't miss this. The text is intentional about elevating his holiness, but of also elevating his grace. And that's the second thing I want you to see this morning, that our God is gracious. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, The Israelites cried out to the Lord, right? So they're under the rule of this foreign king. God has sold them into slavery. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Kishon Rishathium of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. I just want you to know I'm killing the names this morning. Like, I'm killing the names. I had a professor once who said, like, if you don't know it, just say it with confidence, whatever it is, and people believe you. Just make sure you say it at the same time, every way. But I think I'm getting them right, for the record. We see in these two verses the grace of God. It's here in these two verses where we are introduced to the first judge, to Othniel. But as I mentioned before, we don't, we don't learn that much about him here. We don't even really learn a lot about what he did. Not when you consider how much detail we're going to get on some of the other judges, right? Deborah gets two chapters. Gideon gets three chapters. When you get to the end, Samson gets four chapters. And Othniel, the best of them, gets five verses. And again, because I think at the beginning, God is establishing this reality that ultimately this isn't about the judges, It's about him, and any deliverance is because God is gracious. And you see that in the verses we just read. It says there at the beginning of verse 9 that Israel, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, in order to understand just how gracious God is being, we have to understand exactly what this crying out is there in verse 9. Because I think we can read that and think, oh man, they understood their sin and they were crying out in repentance. But there's a different Hebrew word for repentance and this isn't it. It just says they cried out. And one commentator was helpful. His name's Lawson Stone. He said that the verb here, the very verb cry, carries no... No inherent nuance of repentance or, appeal, or even appeal whatsoever. But it simply denotes that they were in agony. 
So in other words, the people of God were not crying out because they came to understand that they were failing to live out the covenant expectation for the people of God. They were not crying out because they understood that they had offended a holy God who rightly deserves all praise and glory and worship. They were not crying out because they even understood their sin. They simply cried out because they didn't like the consequences. They just didn't like the consequences. And and as I processed that, it reminded me, it's a helpful reminder that there is a difference for the Christian between genuine repentance and simply not wanting to face the consequences for your foolishness. And so we've got to ask the question, what is repentance? And I want to be clear, repentance is more than just confessing your sins. Those are two distinct things. Confession is important, right? We, We read that for... You know, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your trespasses, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers. That's this idea of acknowledging your sin and your offense against God. But there is an implication there because he's writing to believers that as he says confession, these believers understand its connection to repentance. And repentance isn't just saying, I messed up. Repentance isn't just saying, I got it wrong. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry, God. Repentance is genuinely believing that God is right and that we are wrong. And as a response, the response is we will be obedient to God and not follow after what we want to follow after. So that's what repentance is. What is repentance? Not, it's not saying I'm sorry. It's not saying I don't want to face the consequences. It's not saying that I don't want the hardship that comes with my foolishness. And what genuine repentance will often require is a willingness to endure the consequence because we care more, not about things getting easier, but about being made right with God. Sometimes the most holy thing that we can do is pray that the consequences endure so that perhaps repentance might be genuine. But check this out. God is so gracious that even though, see, God's not confused by their crying out. I wonder if they get it. Like maybe they understand. Maybe they don't. Like this is the God that knows hearts and minds. He knows they could care less about their sin and they don't like the consequences. And God is so gracious that even though he knows that this repentance is not genuine, he raises up a deliverer and he raises up a judge. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Kishan Rishathium of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Here's the judge. First judge. God raises up Othniel. Now, there's something that demands our attention and, and, and I want to be clear, while we want to primarily look at God as we work through these judges, God doesn't want us to miss the judges themselves. I mean, there's a reason he put them in the Bible, because he could have just said Israel cried out and God saved them. So he wants us to at least take a look at these men and women who are going to serve as judges. So God raises up Othniel. But what's interesting about Othniel, and you wouldn't know this just from reading this text, But what's interesting about Othniel is that he doesn't seem by earthly standards to be the best choice for a judge. Here's what I mean. A lot of commentators, it was interesting to read this. When you get to Othniel, they struggle with making sense of how Othniel fits in this story. How he would be the judge 
for the situation. The reason being is that Aram, the place that conquers Israel in this section, is from the northernmost part of the region. That's where, God, where God's people were dwelling up north. And it was at the northernmost point, what we would call Mesopotamia. But we know from chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, where Othniel's mentioned for the first time, that he was from the very southern tip of Judah. So he wouldn't have necessarily even been in captivity under King Kushan Rishathiam. He was potentially hundreds of miles away. And what we see throughout the story is that most times the judges is raised up out of the people who are in captivity. But Othniel comes from even a, a different part of the land. He's not even close to them. And, and so one commentator explains it like this. He says, but as an attack from this area would come from the north, it's not easy to see how Othniel, associated with the tribe of Judah in the extreme south, should be chosen as a deliverer. And he goes on and he notes how for some, the fact of an attack from the north, it's occasioned some extreme hypotheses, even to suggest that the, 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 originally the name of the deliverer wasn't preserved. I mean, basically, so they made it up and just put Othniel in there because we already knew who he was from chapter one. So it makes so little sense to people that they think like, well, they just couldn't remember the dude's name, so they just made up a name because there's no way God would bring someone from hundreds of miles from the south all the way up there to deliver them from this king in the north. Here's what I'm getting at. Some seem to think that this makes no sense. Why would God use this person from a different region who's not even under captivity to be the judge of the people in the north? And I don't know. Maybe I'm too simple-minded. Maybe I haven't studied enough scripture, but I'm kind of perplexed why these people are so perplexed by this. Because it just sounds like something my God would do. It just seems like my God would choose the most unlikely, unqualified, ill-prepared person to show off just how strong God is. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many, he's talking about you, okay? God didn't save you because you were wise. He didn't save you because you were powerful. Not many of you are from noble birth. If you are, you need to be tithing more. <laughs> instead, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So let me talk to somebody here this morning who is believing the lie that you don't have the right background you don't have the right education. You don't have the right experience for God to use you in a mighty way. Our God is an expert at taking the unlikely, the unqualified, and the ill-prepared and using them to do unbelievable things for the kingdom of God. So this morning, if you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, if you feel ill-prepared, let me encourage you, brother and sister, you are a prime candidate for the power of God to show off. Because when you are weak, our God says he's strong. And we have to remember that though God's grace is primarily seen through the fact that he has saved us, God's grace is also revealed in the fact that he wants to use us. Which means the same grace that is sufficient to save you is the same grace that is, su is sufficient to sustain you as you go and make much of this God who has done more for you than you could ever imagine. And so the question is not whether you're strong enough. It's not whether you're qualified. It's not whether you're recognized. It doesn't even, the question isn't even, are you the logical choice? The question is simply this, are you faithful? 
Because I don't want you to miss this. God didn't choose Othniel at random. You see, we do know one thing about Othniel. He might not have been from the right region, but he trusted God and was faithful. You say, well, how do you know that, Michael? Well, because of what we learned back in chapter 1. In Judges chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, it says, Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Karath Sefer, I will give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, that's the reason that the lineage is given in Judges 3, so that you know it's the same Othniel in Judges 1. It says that Caleb's younger brother, he captured it. And Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him as a wife. And when she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. And as she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you want? She answered him, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and the lower springs. Now you might be reading that thing. What is that talking about? Well, remember one of the ways that Israel disobeyed God. The chief way they disobeyed God at the beginning of Judges. They failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land because God had said, if you're going to be my covenant people, you need to be my covenant people all by yourself because you're not strong enough to withstand the false teaching and the false religion. You can't make it yet if you engage with the people who aren't like you. And so they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. But then they went a step further, as we read in Judges 3.3, why God was angry with them. Or in Judges 3.6, I'm sorry. It says, the Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves. They gave their own daughters to their sons and worshipped their gods. But that's not what we see with Othniel. You see, Aksa is an Israelite because Caleb is an Israelite. And he wanted to marry an Israelite because God said to marry an Israelite. And when the opportunity came to do so, he took the chance. So he understood the necessity of honoring the covenant. And, and it's even further seen in their desire to dwell in the land. That's the beauty of Aksa asking for more land. Not only did they desire to walk in covenant fellowship, but they understand the beauty of the promised land. And so they said, we want more of it. So if you're willing, give us more of it. They wanted to be in the land. They wanted to be faithful to God. And so Othniel already had a track record of faithfulness before God chose him to be the judge for Israel. Othniel was faithful. And therefore, though he wasn't from the right region, he might have been unqualified and ill-prepared. He was the perfect candidate, not because he was the strongest, not because he was the most prepared, not because it made geographical sense, but because he was faithful. And that's what God requires of us, faithfulness. And as a result, God will give us what we need to accomplish what he has set in front of us. We see it there in verse 10. God raises up Othniel, he calls him, and it says the spirit of the Lord came on him. And he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle and the Lord handed over King Kishan Rishathiam of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Now this is a side note just because we'll see it a little bit in Judges. The spirit works a little differently in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. I'm not going to get too much into it. But what we have to understand is in the New Testament, post the cross and resurrection, for those of us who place our faith in, uh, in Jesus, the spirit indwells us forever. You can't lose the spirit. But in the Old Testament, it didn't work that way. The Spirit of God would come upon people when God had ordained them for a specific task, for a specific purpose, and the Spirit could be removed. That's why when David sins, he pleads with God, please don't take your Spirit from me, because God 
He saw it with Saul. When King Saul failed, God removed his spirit from him. And so here we see that the spirit came upon Othniel. So Othniel was faithful and God granted him the spirit of the Lord. And with the spirit of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, therefore Othniel was able to deliver and be a faithful judge. Again, though Othniel was faithful and though we want to recognize that, he is not the emphasis of the story. God is. Because God's grace is on full display in the fact that when his people cried out in agony, God heard them and had pity on them and delivered them. And can I just tell you this morning, I really do believe that our God is still strong to deliver. This leads to the last thing I want you to see. God is willing to bring peace in the midst of our rebellion. God is willing to bring peace in the midst of our rebellion. Look at the last verse of our text this morning. Then the land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Canaas, died. By the power of God's Spirit, Othniel conquered the king who was oppressing Israel. He delivered them from his rule. But I want you to note something very, very significant. That's why we got to read the Bible carefully. He does not say, then the people had peace. The author intentionally says, the land had peace. And the reason this language is so important is because later on in the book, peace will be applied to the people, but not now. There was no real peace in the people. There was simply peace in the land. And you see, we have to be so careful because what we see in the pattern of Israel is the danger of equating peace right now with a genuine peace with God. And what I mean by that is that there are times when you will not feel the full weight of your sin and you will not feel the full weight of your rebellion. There are times when you will not immediately feel the sting of sin. But a temporary peace in this life does not necessarily mean an eternal peace with God. And what we see throughout the book of Judges is that God is willing and able to bring lasting and meaningful peace in the midst of rebellion. But it will require more than what the judges are able to provide. And while Othniel serves as a picture of the best of the judges, and while we will see in the weeks to come that his time as a judge functions as the paradigm through which we evaluate the rest of the judges, more important than all of that, he paints a lesser picture of a greater deliverer. The one who does not only bring peace to the land, but can bring us peace with God. Othniel is a picture of Jesus. The one who Paul declares in Ephesians 2 is our peace. I know, I know God is willing to bring peace in the midst of our rebellion. Because Paul also says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let me make that simple for you. 
every one of us has rebelled against God. And every one of us deserves by nature the wrath of God. And don't get it confused. Just because you do not feel the sting of sin right now, it does not mean you do not sin. And it does not mean that you are at peace with God. Because maybe God is restraining the full weight of the wickedness in order to lead you to him. We are all by nature deserving of death and hell. But as Paul goes on, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want you to hear me. Maybe you are here this morning and you do feel the full weight of your rebellion. The beauty of what Paul describes to us, the beauty of the Jesus that he describes is that there is no sin that is too great for the grace of God. And God is willing to bring peace into the midst of our rebellion. And maybe you're here and you're like, man, that sounds nice, but my sin just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Even if it doesn't seem that painful, even if it doesn't seem that hard, let me remind you of two things. First, your sin will never bring you what it promises. It will never bring you the joy that you are looking for. It will never bring you the happiness that you are looking for. But the second thing and the more significant thing is that even if it doesn't feel weighty, it's enough to separate you from God for eternity. But the beauty of our God the testimony of Jesus, the message of the gospel declares to us that God is willing to bring peace into the midst of our rebellion. And so as we continue to work through this book of Judges, one thing I don't want us to look, lose sight of is just how amazing our God is. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that you are a holy God. And because you are holy, we know that you must deal with sin. You have to, God. But your holiness is also a comfort because it reminds us that wickedness will not reign in this world forever, Lord. You are holy and you will righteously judge. But we also are reminded that you are a gracious God. And that you long to deliver, you will deliver. And when your people cry out to you, you will respond. And we don't deserve that, God. We don't even deserve to speak your name, and yet you love us and welcome our voices. And God, you will bring peace in the midst of our rebellion. And that's good news for the person who has never trusted in you. And God, that's good news for some of us who have walked with you for 25, 30, 40 years that you will still bring peace in the midst of our rebellion. And so God, I pray that we, your people, would be faithful, even as we talked about earlier,
to confess our sins, believing that you are faithful and just to forgive us from our trespasses, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to bring peace. And we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. God, I know, I pray that so much in this place. But God, your faithfulness is what I'm holding on to. That you will never let us go. You will never forsake us. You will never leave us. You're too good. And we praise you that you are faithful. That even when we are broken, you cannot break your promises. So we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.